0: Oh Lord God, we thank you so much for the cross, where your blood was shed, where your body was given for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might be free, that we might be called sons and daughters of you. The Lord God, the King, our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. We thank you so much for who you are, and we love to gather and to sing your praise. Lord, we pray as we read your word now that you would speak to us that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you would bring challenge and encouragement and inspiration, Lord, and you would make us more Christ-like. I pray for all the Christians who are here this morning, Lord, make them more Christ-like today. May they walk closely following Jesus' footsteps, I pray. And, Lord, I pray if there are any who do not know Jesus, as Lord and Savior, Lord, would you meet with them, would you reveal yourself to them, that they might know that salvation, the good news of Christianity today, and have their life transformed for the better, entering into a glorious relationship with the living God who created all things. Lord, come and have your way in us operate. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. My name's Duncan, and it's lovely to uh, see you all. And we're continuing our Nehemiah sermon series together, and we're reading together um, Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning. I want to begin with a question. How does God's forgiveness, his mercy and his grace, connect to God's call to be obedient to Him? If God forgives us our sin, and he does, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is forgiven today and forgiven for eternity. If God is a a forgiving God, if he's ready to forgive, as we preached from Nehemiah chapter 9 last week, then surely we can do whatever we want. We don't need to obey. We don't need to do what God says. If God is a forgiving God, then we can do whatever we want. Obedience is unimportant and doesn't matter. In Romans 6, verse 1, Paul reaches this stage in his argument. The book of Romans is a declaration of the good news of Christianity. And in, in Romans 6, Paul has outlined this good news of forgiveness, this good news of grace and mercy. And so he asked this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, if this is true, if God forgives, if God is gracious, if God is ready to give all who call to him for mercy, then shall we, we just continue in sin? And in fact, if we continue to sin, does that make God even more gracious as he continues to forgive us? Is there an incentive to sin in order that God's grace might abound? That's what Paul was asking at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. And I believe as we read Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to begin to answer that question that Paul asked in the New Testament in Romans chapter 6. Is it that we can just go on in sin or is there a connection between God's mercy and his call for us to obey how he instructs us. I just want to remind you, before I read uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, I want to remind you of what we spoke about last week. Last week we read Nehemiah 9, and um, the Levites in the city of Jerusalem tell the history of Israel. And as they tell the history of Israel, there's a repeating pattern over and over in Nehemiah chapter 9. They say, firstly, God has been good and faithful. He's loved us, he's cared for us, he's been He's been our father. He's given us everything we need. Because that's true, isn't it? God does. God is good to us. He gives us life. He preserves us. He gives us lots and lots of good gifts. That's the first stage of the cycle. The second stage of the cycle is that men and women are sinful and disobey God. In spite of God's faithfulness, we turn away and rebel. And then the third stage of the, of the pattern of the cycle is, is that God is gracious and merciful in spite of the rebellion of the Israelites. He keeps this nation alive, and it's true of our life as well. God has been good to us, yet we have rebelled and been sinful and done things wrong. And yet God is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love towards us. And so what I'm about to read to you in Nehemiah chapter 10 is a response to that story, a response to that history, to that way of looking at the world. So I'm going to read Nehemiah 9, verse 38, and then the whole of chapter 10 to us this morning. And, and the words are already on the screen. Thank you, Gareth. Brilliant job, mate. Um, let me read to you Nehemiah 9:38 and the whole of chapter 10. Because of all of this, the whole history, that's just been told, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names <coughs> of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And another list of names. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasha, Amariah, Malkiah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harun, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshalan, Abijah, Miamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. these are the priests, and the Levites, Jeshua the son of Azaniah, Binui the son of Hanadad. Kadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherubiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Harosh, Hahavmoah, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Babai, Ad, 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 Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atter, Hazakiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashun, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anaya, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashuv, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hash, Hashabna, Anan, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his statutes, uh, sorry, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and of the exaction of every debt." We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We bind ourselves to bring the firstfruits of our ground, and the firstfruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons, and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds, and of our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is written, the Levites who collect tithes in all our towns where we labour. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priestly minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. I think there's probably some of you thinking, where's he going to go with this passage this morning? Well, I've got I want to answer three questions this morning. Firstly, what's going on in chapter 10? What's happening? That's my first question. What's going on? Always a good question to ask when you're reading the Old Testament. The second question I want to answer is, what in chapter 10 is distinctly Old Testament, Old Covenant? What is Jewish about chapter 10 rather than Christian? And we're going to talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in that second section today. And finally, my third question is, despite those differences between the Old and the New Covenants. What can Christians learn from this passage? What's helpful for us? And what can we learn together? So what's going on? What's distinctly Old Covenant and Old Testament in this chapter? And what is helpful for New Covenant Christians? And if you don't understand some of those words I've just used, hopefully you will by the time I have finished. So firstly, what is going on in Nehemiah chapter 10? Well, the answer to that question is... They are renewing the Mosaic Covenant. They are renewing a covenant given by Moses in the book of Exodus. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible after Genesis. And in Exodus, God rescues the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And he says to them, I'm going to lead you into the promised land. And then at Mount Sinai... God meets with the people of Israel. There's fire and there's smoke upon the mountainside. And the people are slightly scared, slightly terrified at this amazing apparition, this amazing appearance of God in the fire and the smoke around Mount Sinai. And Moses alone goes into the smoke and the fire on the mountain to receive the law, to receive the covenant. Part of that law that he receives is the Ten Commandments. But there's lots more in it as well. And the book of Exodus outlines what the law says, what the Mosaic covenant says. That word covenant is a a promise, is a contract between God and people. How should people relate to God? How will God relate to the people? It's a promise and a contract between the people of God, Israel, and God himself. In Deuteronomy, the fifth book, of the Old Testament, just before the Israelites go into the promised land, Moses stands and repeats, reminds them of the laws that they have been given as a nation. And what he says in Deuteronomy, what God says through Moses in Deuteronomy, is if you obey the laws in this covenant, it will go well with you in the land. But if you disobey the laws in this covenant, the law will become a curse to you. There will be punishments upon you. Foreign nations will come and invade and conquer you. You will be punished for disobeying the laws in the Mosaic Covenant. And of course, that is exactly what's happening, that second option. The Israelites have been disobedient. They have rejected God. They've gone after idols. They've worshipped statues. They've Um, They've forgotten God, forgotten to give him any prayer or any thanksgiving. They haven't offered the sacrifices that the old covenant law commanded them to make. They haven't obeyed the commands over and over. They're disobedient and they rebel against God. And for that reason, foreign nations come in and invade and conquer the nation of Israel. There is a reason why at the start of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is in Susa, which is a citadel of Persia. He's been taken into exile. Now, you remember, uh, a few weeks ago, many weeks ago, at the beginning of the book, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia in Susa. He is in exile, and the reason he's there is because the nation of Israel broke the covenant, and because they were disobedient, God, as he promised, as he said, brought upon them this punishment and took them into exile in foreign nations. There's a reason why at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah the wall needs rebuilding. And the reason the wall needs rebuilding is because the city of Jerusalem has been conquered by foreign invaders. They have disobeyed and God has brought upon them the the curse and the punishment that he said will always fall upon those who break this covenant given by Moses. And so the book of Nehemiah describes Nehemiah returning out of exile, back into the city of Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah describes them rebuilding the wall that has been knocked down. And finally, here in chapter 10, we find a recommitment to the law that was given. Do you see, this is a book of restoration. They've returned from exile, they've rebuilt the wall, and then they recommit to the covenant that was given to them in the book of Exodus, in the book of Deuteronomy, before they entered the promised land. It's almost as if this is a moment of re-entering the promised land. They're back in the city of Jerusalem. They're back in the place that God has set aside for them. And so it's appropriate for them to say, let us recommit to the covenant that was broken. Let Let us stand before God and with one another and say, we are going to now obey that covenant that was given to us. And so all the names In verses 1 to uh, 27, all those names that I read to you are heads of households. People saying, yes, we're going to sign our names. We're going to sign up to this covenant again. We're going to renew our commitment to this uh, Mosaic covenant. And it's not just the heads of households represented by those names, but in verse 28, it says the rest of the people as well. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, everyone. The rest of the people come together in Jerusalem and recommit to this old covenant that was given in Exodus and Deuteronomy. That is what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 10. Now, we need to have a think about the role of the Mosaic covenant in the life of a Christian. This is a nice meeting topic for you this morning. We need to have a think about the role of the Mosaic covenant in the life of the Christian. Or, Or to put it another way, Um, What in this chapter is specifically Old Covenant, Old Testament? And how does Jesus change our relationship to the Old Testament law and covenant? So for the Old Testament Jews, this was a holy moment of recommitment. But as Christians, we need to know that Jesus Christ changes our relationship with this covenant that they're recommitting to. So if I sit up here and preach this passage to you today and says, well, you see, in this this chapter, they all decide that they're going to pay a third part of the shekel to the service of the house of our God. If I stood up and said, well, they did it in Nehemiah chapter 10, so we all need to do that as well. We all need to find out, what's the equivalent of a third of a shekel? I don't know, maybe a hundred pounds? I've no idea, I've literally no idea. didn't look up how much a shekel was but you know, that's what it says. They all paid a third of the shekel, so we all need to do exactly what it says in this chapter as Christians, then I would be preaching this passage without considering Jesus and the way Jesus changes our relationships to what's written in this passage of Scripture. And so I would be doing you a huge disservice if I preached. I would be taking you further away from Christ and salvation if I was to preach that this passage to you this morning. If I just said, this is what it says, this is what they did, we need to do exactly the same. We need to know as Christians that Jesus Christ changes our relationship to the old covenant laws, the Mosaic covenant. So I want to read to you a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter seven. I think they might be on the screen as well. But I always forget what I put in the platform. Um, but yeah, Hebrews chapter seven, and I'm going to read to you verses 11 and 12. This is what it says. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The law... The Mosaic Covenant was taught and upheld by Levitical priests who were after the order of Aaron or Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. He was the first high priest. And the tribe of Levi, one of the tribes of Israel, were to provide the priests. And so the Levitical priests were... Basically teaching and upholding this covenant, this Old Testament covenant. And that's what happens in the Old Testament according to God's instructions is these Levitical priests would teach the old law and uphold it and say, This is how you're to relate to God. But Hebrews says, in fact, the whole New Testament says, Jesus Christ is the new priest. When Jesus comes, he comes as a new priest, not a priest according to the Levitical model of priesthood, but rather a priest after Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a priest in the book of Genesis, in the first book of the Bible. We're not going to go and read about Melchizedek, but if you want to ask about him... You know, I'd like nothing more over coffee than to spend the whole time chatting about Melchizedek. So if you want to know about Melchizedek. But Melchizedek was in Genesis and the old covenant law, this Mosaic law, comes in in the book of Exodus after Melchizedek. And Jesus is not according to the Levitical priests who come in in the book of Exodus. He's after the order of Melchizedek. He's a different type of priest to Aaron and the Levites in the Old Testament. And what Hebrews is arguing is this. When the priesthood changes, when a new model of priesthood comes into existence, the law changes as well. The Levitical priests, they led according to this Mosaic covenant. Do you want to have a relationship with God? Well, you need to offer animal sacrifices. You need, to, you need to obey this law. You need to obey this law. This is what it is to be in relationship with God. That's what the Levitical priests were doing in the Old Testament. They were essentially answering this question how could a holy awesome perfect God do relationship with sinful human beings who were weak and imperfect? And for the Levitical priests, it was where you need to sacrifice animals and you need to just try your very, very best to obey the laws that have been given in the old covenant. And one of the main points of the book of Hebrews is that it wasn't just the priests telling the people they were sinful and needed to talk about, animal sacrifices, the priests themselves were sinful as well. So the priests were acting as a mediator between God and man, and they were saying to the people, you guys have sinned, you guys have done things wrong, you guys have broken the law, so you need to sacrifice animals in order to come into a relationship (laughs) with God. But it's not just you, we've messed up too, so we need to sacrifice animals for ourselves as well, in order that we could come and have a relationship with a holy, perfect God. And so this old covenant, this this was the system, the Levitical priests giving reading the commandments of God, telling people to sacrifice animals, but they messed up the commandments of God. But now, a new priest has come. A new mediator has come, and he is the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. He's the new priest. He's the great high priest, according to the New Testament. And he's the perfect mediator between God and man for two reasons. (laughs) Firstly, he is fully God and fully man. That's what it says about Jesus Christ. He he was God in human flesh. He was fully God and fully man. So he is the perfect mediator, isn't he, between God and man. Who who better to go into the presence of God on our behalf and plead our case, the presence of the Father, Jesus Christ. For he he understands us because he's fully human and he is God and so he's able to go into the presence of God. He's the perfect mediator between God the Father and human beings on earth because he's fully God and fully man. But more than that, Second reason he's the perfect mediator is because he himself was sinless. He didn't need to sacrifice animals on his behalf. He'd never, done, he'd never done anything wrong and therefore he truly was able, in his own righteousness, to stand before the Father, to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. Do you see, he is the perfect mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus comes as this perfect mediator, he says there's a new way of doing relationship with God. This is, In the Old Testament, you read the law, you tried your very best to keep it, and when you didn't keep it, you had to sacrifice an animal. And that's what we, that's, that was the old way of relating to God. But now, Jesus says, I have come. I am the perfect mediator between God and man. And I am the sinless Saviour. The one who died on the cross. The one who gave Himself as a sacrifice. He doesn't take an animal and sacrifice an animal in order to the cross. No, He gives Himself as the perfect. Infinite sacrifice on behalf of all who would put their faith in Jesus. And so everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is forgiven the things they've done wrong. They no longer need to sacrifice animals to come into the presence of God. No, Jesus has given himself as the sacrifice that people might come into his presence. And this is is what's called the new covenant. It's called the new covenant of grace. It's the covenant of mercy, where your sins are forgiven, and because your sins are forgiven, you live as a child of God, son or daughter of God forever, eternally. It's so important we understand this distinction between the new covenant and the old covenant. The old covenant was about work and earning. I do righteous work, and I earn the blessing of God. Or alternatively, I do unrighteous work, and I earn the curses, the punishment of God. That's the old covenant, it's about work and earning. You either do good work, or you do bad work, and therefore you either earn blessing, or you earn punishment. In fact, it says this in the Nehemiah passage, actually. If you look at verse 29, there's some really odd phraseology in verse 29. It says all the the rest of the people join with their brothers and their nobles enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. In what sense are they entering into a curse? Well, what they're doing is they're saying, if we disobey... We are prepared to let God curse us for our disobedience. That's what's happening. As you enter into the Old Covenant, they are, in a sense, entering into a curse. If they disobey God's commands, they're entering under God's curse for their disobedience. And and they're saying, We enter into a curse, we enter into an oath to walk in these ways. So we're saying, We're going to obey, we're going to do it, we're going to walk in God's ways. But we're entering into a curse because if we don't, there's punishment that is associated with our disobedient work. So the Old Covenant. Work and earning. The new covenant is completely different in the sense that it's about grace and receiving. The old covenant, work and earning. New covenant, grace and receiving. Christ dies, freeing us from the curse of disobedience under the old covenant. And he rises from the grave in glory and power so that whoever puts their faith in him doesn't earn salvation, doesn't earn forgiveness, doesn't earn eternal life, but receives those things as gifts. Gifts that we didn't deserve, we haven't earned them. They are not fair wages for the way we behave, no. They're gifts of grace, unmerited favour given to people who don't deserve it. It's the glorious gospel of God that anyone, whatever their past, whatever they've done wrong, can call out to Christ and say, Lord, I believe I believe in you. Have mercy upon me. And God, in his grace, will forgive. I love that about the gospel. It doesn't, there's not a big gate with metal, bottom. I know there's purple railings outside our building, but there's not a big gate at the entrance to churches with spikes on it and people's heads who tried to get in who weren't worthy. No, there's gates wide open saying anyone can come, whoever, whoever believes on the name of Jesus can be saved. It's about grace. It's not about who you are and what you've done. It's not about what you've earned in life. It's simply about receiving a gift. That is the new covenant which we love and rejoice and celebrate. We don't earn, we receive because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus earns on our behalf and what Jesus has earned, he gives to us as a gift of grace. Praise be to Christ, our Lord and Saviour. I'm so glad I don't live under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, but rather live under this new covenant of grace and receiving But because we live under this new covenant, when we read, when we read Nehemiah chapter 10, we have to be careful to read it as a Christian rather than as someone under the old covenant. And so there are a few examples in this passage of things that we read. There's things for us to learn as Christians, but we don't just read and go, oh yes, that's what we need to do as well. Because there's old covenant things in this passage. We need to read with wisdom and discernment to understand what applies, what is helpful for a new covenant Christian and what's actually but something that belongs to the old covenant. So i want to give you a few examples in the passage of things that belong to the old covenant. So firstly, have a look at verse 29. In the old covenant, believers must walk in God's law given by Moses. When an old covenant Jew says, how should I live? Well, the answer is to go, what does the law say? Because I'm under the law. And so whatever the law says, that's what I must do. How, How should I react in this situation? Let me go and read the law. And whatever it says, that's what I must do. And if I don't do it, then I'll be cursed for my disobedience. That's what it was to live under the old covenant. To walk in the law. But in the new covenant, in Galatians 5 verse 16... Paul gives Christians a different instruction. It doesn't say walk in the law. It says in Galatians 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Christians believe that Christ fulfilled the law on their behalf. He, he He obeyed the law. He fulfilled it. He did everything in its perfection. And so we don't have to go to the law and say, I must obey this, I must do this, otherwise I'll be under a curse, because Jesus has already fulfilled it on my behalf. And Jesus doesn't just fulfill the law on our behalf. He also gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Part of his gift of grace, which includes forgiveness and eternal life and a relationship with God the Father, includes the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the third person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ gives him to us. And so every Christian lives with the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, And the Holy Spirit comes, and when he comes, he transforms our heart. There's an Old Testament metaphor, it it says, you used to have hearts of stone, but I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming and, in a sense, warming your heart, making your heart alive in the presence of God. In other words, it's not... It's not a stone where you chisel in the old covenant law. It's a heart of flesh that's alive in the presence of God. And the Holy Spirit comes. He gives us life in our hearts. And so we've changed hearts. Out of, our, out of the transformation that's come from within, we walk. We live according to the Holy Spirit's guidance. He changes us because Christ has given him. And then we walk by the Spirit. We walk in the power of the Spirit. Do you see how it's, it's, there's a difference to that? What One says, what's the law saying? Oh, I must do it. I must try really hard. The other says... Holy Spirit is in me and he's changed me, he's transformed me and, and Jesus has saved me and, and now I'm going to walk according to the Holy Spirit's guidance. So that's one difference. We don't walk in the law, we walk by the Spirit in the New Covenant. So that's one thing in, in Nehemiah 10, that we need to read differently as Christians. Secondly, um, I've already mentioned this, but have a look at verse 32, where the people in Jerusalem say, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. Do you see how that verse is just a membership fee? Mm-hmm. It's like, if you want to come and worship at the temple, you've got to pay a fee, uh, and that's that's how it is. That would t- And they, the people go, we're, going, we're entering into this old covenant, we're entering into this law, we're taking upon ourselves this membership fee that we have to pay yearly. If you keep reading through the passage, in verse 38, they start talking about tithes, And the Hebrew word tithe just means a tenth. That's literally what it means in Hebrew, just a tenth. And and so in this passage, in this moment, the people are taking upon themselves an obligation to pay the third of a shekel as a membership fee every year, and they're taking upon themselves an obligation to give 10% of everything they grow and all the animals they rear and and everything they have. They're, They're taking upon themselves an obligation to give 10%. They are under the law. They must do that. The New Testament doesn't say you're under a command to give 10% of your income. The New Testament says you're called to be generous people living by the Holy Spirit who is within you. And therefore you are called to give cheerfully and generously whatever you have decided in your heart to give. So then there's one way of living which is, I am under this obligation, I must give 10%, I must give a third of the shekel every year. And there's another way of living in the new covenant, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's changing me, giving me a desire to help others who are less well-off than me, giving me a desire to fund the mission of the gospel that people would go out and declare. And so I'm gonna give cheerfully. I'm gonna, Whatever I've decided in my heart, I'm not under a command telling me exactly how much I should give. I'm filled with the spirit to be generous with that which I have. And so some people, because of their circumstances, are able to give way more than 10% and be really generous and others are in different circumstances and give less. And that's fine because it's about our heart attitude. It's about our cheerfulness and our, our desire to be generous. It's about our heart attitude rather than the actual amount that we're giving compared to our income. We are not under a law to give tithes, to give 10%. But we are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit and generous with the money that we receive. And so we we shouldn't read verse 32 and verse 38 and go, all right, okay, we need to give a third of the shekel. We need to give 10% of our income. No, we we should read it and say, how is this different in the new covenant? How does this change when Christ comes? We must read Nehemiah 10 as new covenant Christians rejoicing in Jesus who has saved us by grace. We must understand that some of this passage belongs to the old covenant. However, having said that, I do believe that there are things that are helpful in Nehemiah chapter 10. And so my final question, my final point. Despite differences, what does God teach us as New Covenant Christians in this passage? There are things that we should take away from it. The first is this. The obedience and the commitment in Nehemiah chapter 10 flows from understanding of grace. Last week in Nehemiah chapter nine, this repeated idea comes up over and over again. It's in 917, 927, 928, and 931. And the repeated idea in chapter nine is that God is merciful and gracious and ready to forgive. There's lots of references to the mercy of God in Nehemiah chapter uh, chapter nine. And so if God is merciful then, as I said at the beginning, surely we have license to do what we want. That question in Romans chapter six: What shall we, we continue in sin that grace may abound? If we've got this beginning, we can do whatever we want. And in theory, that is true. In theory, that is true. Salvation is not by works; it's by grace. And so, what you do has no bearing at all upon whether you are saved. Because your salvation is not built upon your works, it's built upon the work of Christ and the grace that he has given to you. So if you have received the grace of Jesus Christ by faith, in theory, you can do whatever you want. Because you have been saved by the grace. Your your salvation does not depend upon your works. But in practice, that never, ever happens. In practice that never, so in theory yes, do whatever you want, doesn't matter because your salvation does not depend on what you do at all. But in practice, this never happens. Because what happens when you receive the grace of Jesus Christ? You're filled with the Holy Spirit and he transforms who you are, he transforms your desires, he transforms the way you live, he starts to change your life. We don't obey to earn our salvation. Any Christian says I'm I'm doing this in order to earn God's favor and blessing in my life. They haven't understood grace. That's not a new covenant Christianity. We don't, we don't obey God to earn his favor because we know God Christ loved us so much he died for us on the cross. God, God loves us with, a, with an eternal, steadfast love forever. We, there's no there's no additional favour that we can earn by doing good works. God's, God's given us all things. He's not withholding favour, going, I'm just waiting until you you do this or you obey this command. No, he's a, he's a God who loves to pour favour upon his children. So you, you're not going to obey to earn more of God's love. We don't even obey to repay God for what he's done. If we could ever repay, Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. He gave his life upon the cross for us. He gave everything in pain and agony, in love, do you think my small deposits in the bank are going to somehow repay that amazing? No. I can never give. I can never repay what Jesus has done for for me. Never, ever. We don't obey to earn God's favour. We don't obey to repay some kind of debt. No. Having seen God's love and goodness and being filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore not just seeing God's love and goodness, but also experiencing it, obedience is a joy. God's grace transforms our perception of who God is, and therefore it is a joy to obey him. I'm not saying sometimes sometimes it's difficult to be obedient, I'm not saying it instantly becomes easy, but if you truly perceive how gracious God is, how good he is, how loving he is, why would I not want to obey? He's got way more wisdom than me. He's got way more, he's, he's even nicer to me, he's, he's better to me than I am to myself. He loves me more than I love myself. And he's infinitely wise. Surely his, his instructions to me are good for me. And so as our perception of God is transformed, it becomes a joy to obey. And so grace flows into obedience. There's a connection between the two. There isn't a person who has received the grace of Christ, who just does whatever, just goes on living however they want, with no change in their life. That person does not exist. Theoretically, perhaps possible, but in practice, never existing. The desire to obey flows from grace. That means if you continue in sin and there's no struggle with sin, there's no sorrow in your heart when you do things wrong, and you're not ashamed of your sin in any way, perhaps you even take pride in the sin that you commit, it's extremely likely that you have not truly received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you continue in sin with no struggle, no sorrow, no shame at the things you're doing wrong, even though you know they're wrong, then it's extremely likely, definite, perhaps definite, okay? I'll stick with extremely likely for now, it's extremely likely that you have not received the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, if you struggle with sin, it's not like instantly you stop doing things wrong when you become a Christian, but if you, you do sin but you, you struggle with it, you hate sin. You really don't like it in your life. And you confess it when you do things wrong. And you repent. You have moments where you go, Lord, I can't believe I did that. I'm so sorry. I, just, I thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. I know that that sin does not affect my relationship with you. And yet I, I do hate the fact that I, I didn't pray for... 24 hour. I didn't. I didn't read my Bible. Right. I. I lied about that thing. Or I did something so selfish and full of pride. If you struggle with sin, you hate it. You confess it. You repent from it. That desire to obey God is from the Holy Spirit within your heart, and it's extremely likely that you have truly received God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So obedience flows from grace in Nehemiah chapter 10, and that's exactly the same in the New Covenant. Obedience flows from grace. And I believe there might be one or two people here this morning who feel that they need to reconnect to obedience, in, in a sense. Not, again, not to earn your salvation, not to repay God for what He's done, but simply because of how good He has been to you. Maybe there's a moment for some of us to say, actually, I, I've slipped a little bit. My hunger for righteousness has been lower than it was in the past. If that's you, I'd encourage you to confess your sin. And look at the cross again. I think I am running out of time, but I want to take you very quickly to two Peter chapter one. Two Peter chapter one, and I'll read to you some of my favourite verses. Two Peter one verses five to nine. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. We're to add to our faith virtue. We're to add to our faith knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and brotherly affection and love. We're, essentially, we're to grow in obedience, to grow in Christ-likeness. But if we're not adding those things to our lives, then the verse says that we've forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins. And so the implication of that verse is if you're drifting into ungodliness and a lack of virtue and a lack of brotherly love, remember that Jesus died for you on the cross. And that you were cleansed from your former sins because that focus upon what Christ has done will help you grow in virtue and steadfastness and knowledge and brotherly affection and love. In other words, the cross of Christ is not something that you think about once, become a Christian and go on the rest of your life. No, it's something you come back to over and over again. Because seeing the grace of God upon the cross, in the love of Christ upon the cross, is a way to fuel and fire you up to live virtuous, godly, faith-filled, steadfast, love-filled lives. If you want to grow in virtue and righteousness, if you want to grow in obedience... Remember that Jesus died for you. Remember that you were cleansed from your former sin. Remember mercy to progress in virtue. So if you're saying, if you're someone and you go, I, mean, I think I need to recommit to obedience, I've been slipping, I've been, I've been fading into ungodliness. Picture eyes upon Jesus upon the cross. Remember that he cleansed you from your sin. Remember mercy to progress in virtue. One final thing to consider that Nehemiah 10 teaches us. A separation and distinction from the world. In verse 28, it says, All who separated themselves from the peoples of the land. And in verse 30, it says, We will not give our daughters to the people of the land. We will take our daughters for our sons. There's this very clear idea in Nehemiah 10 that the people of God are distinct from everybody else. It's kind of what the word holy means. When you're made holy, you're set apart from the world. And every Christian is made holy when they put their faith in Christ. There's an encouragement to be set apart for God, which means that your life of obedience should look different from those who have not put their faith in Jesus. And if it doesn't, then again, that's a huge warning flag to consider What's going wrong? Why aren't you progressing in virtue? Why aren't you progressing in obedience? And that's why obedience becomes heart. Because we're to be distinct. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And There's a point about marriage that um, I will make quickly. Sorry about this. But it's, I just think it's important to, to speak about this. In verse 30, in the part of the Old Covenant, the people are told not to marry outside of God's people which is a command that's repeated in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Now, if you're already married, then the instruction is to continue in marriage so long as the person you're married to wants to continue to be married to you. But I just want to say to anyone single in the room considering marriage, don't marry non-Christian. That was there in the old covenant, and it's there in the new covenant. And it, it just It just makes life really difficult and challenging to be married to someone who isn't seeking the virtue and the faith in Jesus. So encouragement to you, if you're in that situation where you're continuing your marriage, but if you are single, I just really encourage you to think about the way Christians are meant to be distinct and separate from the world, and think about the closeness and intimacy of marriage, and how you do virtually all of life with the person you're married to, and just, you know, store that up and say, that's wisdom that I'm gonna hold to, I'm not gonna marry someone who's not a believer. So two things really we can take from Nehemiah chapter 10. One, Obedience flows from grace. In this new covenant which we live in, obedience flows from seeing Christ on the cross and cleansing us from our sin. And in this idea that we need to be distinct and separate from the world. So to draw to a close, I want to encourage us to do three things. To celebrate the new covenant of Christ. He has rescued us by grace. He has saved us by grace. Secondly, to remember that grace flows into virtue and obedience. We obey the instructions of Scripture, we follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit because of the way God has saved us. And finally, an encouragement to consider how are you distinct and separate from the world? I'm going to pray. Um, I'm just seeing whether we've got time in on somewhere. I've gone over my time. No, okay, I feel like I've made over my time. Let's uh, let's pray to finish our service. Why don't we stand and um, I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for the new covenant that Christ brought as our new high priest. That we are saved by grace. We don't earn our salvation. We don't earn your favour. But you rescue us and give us forgiveness, eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we just receive it. Lord, I pray that each of us would remember that today. And people, maybe, there may be people watching online or here this morning who need to receive those gifts for the very first time. Lord, rescue them, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. May they their faith in Jesus now and believe in him for eternity. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us as we are, but you change us in the power of the Holy Spirit. You transform us. And I pray that in this moment, we would recommit to obey you, to follow you, to become more Christ-like. And I pray for a growth in virtue, I pray for a growth in knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Lord, May we have these qualities more and more day by day as you transform us according to your will and in your glory. We thank you so much that you have rescued us, that you have set us apart from the world. And I pray we would live as servants of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.